Well, just for those of you who are new, just introduce myself. My name is Philip Pattison, um, and I'm one of, the, one of the pastors here at Twin Oaks Church. And I just want to say, on behalf of all of us here, we're just so glad that you would choose to join us today. I hope that today is a, is a blessing to you. Um, we're going to dive into the study of God's Word, but as we do that, can I just pray and ask that God would, would bless our time. Dear Father, we, we, uh, we recognize your presence here with us today, and that it's for that, it's it's for that reason that we, we gather, Lord, is to in, engage with you, to in, encounter you. And we pray, Lord, that you would um, speak clearly to us through um, your uh, revealed word, that, that you would uh, do just a great work in each of our hearts. I pray, God, that there would be clarity in, in, uh, in this message, Lord, that you would speak clearly to us and that um, we would respond in faith. Lord, this is a, a heavy, heavy topic this morning. It's just a very weighty passage, and, and Lord, we just we, uh, look to you to make it clear what you want to communicate to us, the truth, and then again, that we might respond in faith and love you and serve you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And thank you so much for everybody here. God, we believe that they're here for a reason. I pray, God, that you just would do a work in each one of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so last week, what we did is we introduced where we're going to be headed in our study of the scriptures here on Sunday mornings. Um, we're going to be looking together from this point on for a little while now at the Gospel according to John, the Gospel of John. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them now and uh, turn with me to John chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, we have Bibles in the back that we'd love to get to. If you just even raise your hand now, we can, one of our ushers can put one uh, in your hand. Uh, last week, what we did is we spent our entire time simply looking at the author and the intent of the book of John. The Gospel according to John, we said, is a biography of Jesus, written by one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples, a guy named John. Now, John, we said, was a fisherman, right? Fisherman who left everything that he had to follow Jesus, okay? And he eventually became a part of Jesus' inner circle of three guys that Jesus uh, deeply and, and uh, in a very special and unique way um, invested in. John, John was there, with Jesus. John heard his teachings. John saw his miracles. Uh, John was present when Jesus went up onto the mountain. He was tr- transfigured into his full glory. John was sitting next to Jesus at his last meal. John was there in the garden when Jesus was arrested. From what we know, John was actually the only apostle who was present when Jesus was tried, when he was accused, when he was tortured, and when he was crucified. We know that John was the uh, first of the apostles to actually see the empty tomb. Three days after Jesus was killed on the cross, remember the women find the empty tomb, and they go back and they run and tell the apostles, and the apostles run out to the empty tomb. John was the first guy there, first apostle there. We know that John was the first to recognize Jesus in his resurrected body as he's standing on the shore. When, when Jesus came out and dis- displayed in that time, John was the first apostle to recognize Jesus for who he was. Um, Commentator after commentator after commentator that I have read says the very same thing, that John was most likely Jesus' closest friend, closest companion on the planet when Jesus walked among us. Um, John, more than any other person in history, more than any other person in history, I don't say that lightly, has the ability to give us the inside scoop at who Jesus truly was and is. And not only does John have the ability to communicate with his words, Jesus' identity and his mission, John has the ability, even through his own transformed heart, to show us the power of Christ. I told you guys, John went from being an impetuous, self-seeking, power-hungry zealot to a spirit-filled servant who we now refer to as the apostle of love. Last week, we asked the question, well, then what, what was it that could provoke such a transformation in the heart of a guy like John? 
Remember, he was the guy who was early on in his, in his walk with Jesus. He was, you know, remember when the village rejected Jesus and they're like, you know, they, we want nothing to do with him. John, angry, uh, a little over, overzealous, comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, you want me to call down fire on the village for you? And Jesus, of course, rebukes him. That, but anybody who rejected Jesus, you want me to call fire down from heaven on that person? And then later... We talked about the stories at the end of his life after he had experienced the gospel, after he'd seen firsthand who Jesus was and what he had accomplished. John was actually wanting to give his own life for those who would reject Jesus if only they would experience the freedom and forgiveness of Christ. This is the transformation we saw in John. Um, we, we said, well, you know, what is, what is the answer? How, how, does John, how did John experience that type of transformation? And what we said was, the answer is found in how John describes himself in his writings. John doesn't simply refer to himself. He doesn't title himself as John the Apostle, does he? How did he title himself in the book of John? He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loves. That's how he defined himself. That's how he titled himself. It wasn't to say that Jesus had less love for the other disciples or less love for you and me today. It's that John, John describes himself in that because he realized the significance of the love of God and that now utterly defined him. It defined who he was. I am the disciple whom Jesus loves. And if you can get a hold of that too, that the sovereign, all-powerful, faithful, the good, the holy God of the universe loves you, loves you to the point of dying for you, that will transform you. Uh, That was John's goal in writing this book. We said John's goal in writing this book was that we too might come to the same understanding that God loves you. And again, if you don't hear anything else I, I say today, I hope you'll at least get that. God loves you. God loves you. Uh, It was John's goal that we came to this understanding that God himself came in the flesh and died for us that we might be reconciled to him. John 20, verses 30 and 31. Right at the end of the book, John says this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why he wrote this book. That's why this whole gospel is put out, is that so you would understand that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you might have life in his name. The book is written that you might understand and embrace the identity and mission of Jesus. We said last week that the most important question that you and I can ask is who is Jesus? And there's no better place for us to get the answers than the firsthand testimony of those who have the greatest access to him. Uh, it took John, we said, it took John three years of walking with him and traveling with him and eating with him and l- watching him and listening to him. It took him three years to fully comprehend who Jesus was and what he came to do because of all these preconceived notions that John had in his mind about what the Messiah was going to be and what he was going to do. But right from the very first sentence, John's not going to make you and I wait today as, as, as readers of his gospel. He's not going to make us wait even a sentence or two, right from the very first sentence of this book, John blows his readers away with a stunning declaration of the identity of Jesus. I'm going to read this to you. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Okay, just those two verses. That's all we're going to look at today. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Simple statement, right? Two, two sentences. Unbelievable depth. Um, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks breaking this down. Um, this is a weighty, weighty 
uh, statement that he's making. We're gonna, and we're going to try to break down these two sentences as best we possibly can. But before we do anything, we've got to do something with this term that John keeps using. That's the first thing. We can't go anywhere unless you, you try to, you, unless you figure out what he, what the term that he's saying, the word, the word, the word. He uses that term three times in one sentence. You know that's got to be pretty important. So what's he talking about here? Uh, well, let me give you some context, okay? I read through a great sermon uh, this week, preached years ago by a guy named Mark Driscoll up in Seattle. This, he helped illuminate this for me uh, this week, and I'm hoping uh, by God's grace that I'm able to do the same for us today. Um, let me give you some context. The early Christian church that John was writing to in his day uh, was made up of a diverse group of people. He wasn't just writing to Jews, and he wasn't just writing to Greeks. Okay? It, was, it was a diverse group of people, many nationalities, made up of Jews and Gentiles alike. Actually, according to William Barclay, Greeks outnumbered the Jews in that time and in that area 100,000 to 1. Greeks outnumbered the Jews 100,000 to 1. And I told you, John wrote this book, partially anyway, to be evangelistic in nature. He knew that if he were going to communicate the deep truths of Christ's identity and his mission, he was going to have to communicate in such a way that would transcend culture. The Hebrew culture, the Greek culture were opposite of each other. Very, very different. So how is he going to communicate who Jesus was and is in a way that would penetrate both cultures? What he does is he uses a term the word that's absolutely brilliant. I told you, the Hebrew culture, the Greek culture are very, very different from one another. But he takes the building blocks of their belief system, of their uh, life and religion and philosophy. He takes their building blocks, although dramatically different from one another. And he's able to find a term to use that will, that will help kind of give some common ground. They're going to come at this word from different angles. But it's going to point people to Jesus. First, let me explain to you the Hebrew concept of the word. I think we're going to be pretty familiar with this. The Hebrew concept of the word. The Jews, as we know, trace their religious ancestry from God, calling Abraham out in Genesis chapter 12. We've talked about this a lot. God calls Abraham out in Genesis 12, and then he reissues that call to Isaac and then to Jacob. God speaks. So he, he speaks. There's a word that comes from his mouth. God speaks, and a covenant is created. Through God's word, he bound himself to a people. And then for centuries, God leads the Israelites by the power of his word. They believed that, the Hebrews believed that God would speak to men, that he would, he would raise up, these men were called prophets, but he would speak to them, and then they would write down God's word, and it would be divine revelation. Through God's words to his people, he would relate with them, and he would guide them, and he would direct them. He would correct them. He would encourage them. The scripture was everything to them, but, it, but the word of God went deeper than that. Um, they believe that the word of God not only was a direction to them, like a guidebook to them, but also had power. The word of God had active power. In Genesis, we're told that God creates the world. He puts the world in, into existence by speak, by speaking it into existence. God speaks. He said, and let, he said, God said, let there be light. And boom, there's light. He speaks the world into existence. Behind God's word, there is relationship and there is power. In Isaiah 55, God says, that his word goes out into all nations of the earth and it doesn't return void, that God's word has power and it has authority. It's through God's word that the, the Hebrews, they were set apart, that they were, it is through, through the word that they relate with God and how they find their direction and how they find their blessing and how they found, uh, again, the power to live. But again, the Hebrews, I told you, were just a very small percentage of John's readership. So because John's writing primarily to a Greek audience, John actually writes this gospel that we're going to study. He actually writes the gospel in Greek. Okay, 
The Greeks, too, had a concept of the word, only theirs looked a lot different. The Greek word that was used is logos, L-O-G-O-S. It's where we get our word logic from. But it's, that's, not the, that's not the direction, that's not the angle that they were, were seeing the word logos. We, we kind of took it a different direction. For them, the idea of logos stemmed from, not from Abraham, like the, like the Jews, but from, from the Greeks' version of Abraham, this guy who was kind of pivotal to who the Greeks were and, and, and their philosophy in life. There was a guy named Heraclitus. Heraclitus uh, was uh, a philosopher. He was on the scene, and I write this down, 5th or 6th century BC, before Socrates, before Plato, before Aristotle, all these guys. Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle all were heavily influenced by Heraclitus. This is, among other things, this is what Heraclitus taught. He said Heraclitus, or Heraclitus said that the world, if you, when you look around, the world is constantly changing. The world is in constant motion. It's in chaos. It's in, in constant flux. There was an illustration that he would use. He said, when you put your foot in, in, you would never put your foot in the same river twice. Okay? You put your foot in the river, and it's like you're in a different river. Why? Because the river is constantly moving. It's in constant motion. And he says, and so it goes with life. As he looked at the world around him, he saw how much change there was, how much chaos there was. And he tried to explain you know, it, it, this kind of led, led Heraclitus to despair. And he said, that, you know, everything's changing. Everything's in motion. Everything's chaotic. Yet there's got to be something. There's got to be some kind of constant in this world. There's got to be something behind it all. There's got to be some overarching harmony and unity to it all. There's, we've got to be able to find, in all the diversity, we've got to be able to find unity. In fact, that's where we get our word university from, right? It's the quest to find unity in diversity. There's got to be something that would unify everything, that would explain it all, what could bring it all together, that could bring purpose to it all. And so Heraclitus, 5th or 6th century BC, came up with this idea of the logos, There's this, the, the word. There's got to be something, the essence of the study of philosophy. There's got to be something behind it all, something that could explain our origin and our meaning and our morality and our purpose and our destiny. There's got to be something. He's like, everything is moving. But what is that, what put it into motion? You know, philosophers have talked about this for centuries. There, there, there's got to be, uh, everything is moving. There's got to be an immovable mover. Everything sets something else into motion. What was the first thing which began the motion? What is the immovable mover? Um, the term logos essentially meant this. If you don't get anything I just said, that's okay. Get this. The term logos essentially meant reason for life. Reason for life. Heraclitus said, there's got to be something behind the chaos. There's got to be a reason for life. And for centuries afterwards, the Greeks debated at what that could possibly be. And we're still debating about it today, aren't we? We all ask the questions, what am I living for? What is my purpose? For what or for whom do I exist? And so we pose that same question in here today. Um, Is there a reason today for life? Is there a reason for living? Um, John's already told us, yes, I read the passage. John tells us, yes, there is. But I, I, don't, know, I don't know where each of you stand on this question. And, and so, some of you, you know, we, we, we look to the Bible as our authority, but some of you say, well, I don't believe the Bible. Um, I, I, I'm kind of out on the fence with this whole God thing. Um, I like to, to, to speak to that. There are many, many people, if, if that's where you are today, you are, you're not alone, obviously. There are many people in this world today, and there are many people in John's day uh, that just came to the conclusion, 
I just, I just don't see that there can be a reason behind it. I don't see a logos behind it all. I, I just don't see how there could be some supernatural transcendent being who, who put this all into motion or something behind it all. I just don't, I just don't buy it. Um, said in John, say, many had denied that there was any type of logos. And so then that led them, when they kind of came to that statement, they said, okay, I just don't believe it. I just don't believe there's a God. I don't think there's anything else behind it. They then had to go taking the next step forward. How do you live from that point on? That needs to be, you have to, you have to begin to ask those questions. And okay, if, if that's the reality that I'm choosing to believe in, then how do I live from this day forward? And what happened was, as those questions began to emerge, this divided the philosophical landscape. The two philosophical schools that emerged were the Epicureans and the Stoics. And John say these are the two philosophical schools, the Epicureans and the Stoics. If those names sound familiar, it's probably because, you remember in, in the book of Acts, uh, Paul, uh, Paul speaks to, to the Epicureans and the Stoics on uh, Mars Hill. It's one of my favorite sermons that, that Paul gives, Acts 17. He speaks to these schools. But anyway, both schools of thought felt... Uh, that there were no satisfactory answers. There was no logos behind it all. And so to cope, they chose to live in two very different ways. You still with me? Okay. The Epicureans on one, on one side essentially said, there is no logos. There is no reason for life. There is nothing behind it all. There is nothing transcendent. Therefore, let's party it up. Let's eat. Let's drink. Let's be merry for tomorrow we die. Okay? They said there, there is nothing behind this all, so let's just do, do what feels good before we die. Let's get as much power and acclaim and prestige and success and pleasure as we possibly can for tomorrow we die. Obviously, centuries have gone by, yet we still see the same line of thinking. People all over this valley have yet to come face-to-face with a true and a satisfying reason for life, and as a result, what they choose to do is they run after immediate pleasure, immediate power. They're going to soak in as much pleasure as they possibly can now. It doesn't matter if they destroy themselves along the way. It doesn't matter if they destroy their relationships along the way. Why? YOLO. Right? Somebody say for those who don't, what does YOLO mean? You only live once, right? That has been like the anthem for, for of like, well, like 2011 or something, 2012. <laughs> A little outdated. Um, but seriously, that has been like the, the, the call of like the, this generation. YOLO. What that has sent to me, it's not, it's, you only live once, but, it's, but, it, but beyond that, it, it's saying, it doesn't matter what I screw up. It doesn't matter who I hurt. It doesn't matter if I hurt myself, because I've got 80 years. So make it count now. Have as much fun as I possibly can now. I'm going to do something crazy right now, because I've got 80 years. This is the Epicurean mindset. There's nothing behind it all. When I die, when I close my eyes and I'm dead, I won't open it up to anything. This is it. 80 years. YOLO. That's what that term refers to. Get as much power, get as much acclaim, get as much success, get as much pleasure as you possibly can. I read this week of a conversation between a reporter and a guy named Jack Higgins. Uh, Jack Higgins is a, a novelist from uh, uh, Britain of last, last century. I've read this to you guys before, but I came across this again. Um, he was asked in this interview by the reporter, the interviewer asked him, what do you know now today? This is the end of Jack Higgins' life. After all of his tremendous success, what do you know now that you wish you would have known as a young man? What do you know now that you wish you would have known as a young man? Do you remember what his reply was? He said, I wish I would have known that when I get to the top that there's nothing there. This is coming from the guy who sold over 50 million copies of his books. 
tremendous success, tremendous acclaim. He said, I wish I would have known that when I would finally get to the top, there's nothing there. Solomon says it better than anybody. Solomon was the king of Israel, the son of David, had more wisdom, had more wealth, had more acclaim. Worldwide, he was known for his wisdom and his wealth. Had more than, than we can ever comprehend. Ecclesiastes 2, he writes this. He says, So I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all of my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I can, you understand what he's saying? He said, I kept my heart from no pleasure because of, uh, because of my, this is my reward for my toil. I worked so hard, I deserve it. Look how hard I work. I deserve anything that my eyes saw that I wanted, I took it. Anything my eye, that, that, that looked good to me, I took it, I, I took it and I enjoyed it. Then it says, then I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil that I had expended in doing it. He said, and then I stopped and I took and I, some self-analysis. I stopped and I looked at what I had gained, what I had experienced. And he said, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. It was G.K. Chesterton who said, meaninglessness comes not from being weary of pain, but from being weary of pleasure. Meaninglessness comes not from being weary of pain, but from being weary of pleasure. Okay, that was the Epicureans. Then there was the Stoics on the other side. Theirs was, sounded much more noble and much more grand. This, this school of philosophers called the Stoics, they took a different approach. They felt, okay, no, there's no logos behind it all. That's what we've come to. There's no logos, there's no answers to the meaning of life, but the only way that we can cope and make sense of life is if, to, is if to act as if there really is right and wrong. Act as if there really is such a thing as love and such a thing as beauty and such a thing as morality. No, there is nothing behind it all, but let's at least pretend that there is and we'll act that way. But when push comes to shove, this doesn't hold up. It, it just can't. If you're being reasonable, if you're thinking it through, it, it just can't. One of my favorite quotes comes from a guy named H.G. Wells. This is what he writes. He says, If there is no God then nothing matters. But if there is a God, then nothing else matters. If there is no God, then nothing matters. Please think about that for a second. I know this is, this is kind of a different, this, is a little, this one's a little more heady, but please try to, to stay with me here. If there is no God, then nothing matters. There is nothing transcendent above you and me that tells us that we are more than bones and flesh and organs and muscle. If there's nothing transcendent above, then, it's, then there's nothing that tells us that we are sacred or that we have value. And there's no transcendent authority that tells us what's, what's right and what's wrong. There's no transcendent authority for morality. Who gets to ultimately determine what's right and wrong? If there's no tra- thing, nothing transcendent above us, who gets to say what's right and wrong? It's my word against yours. Bertrand Russell was a British philosopher um, was not a believer in God. He was an agnostic, agnostic, I believe. Um, This is what he writes. He says, Our origin, our growth, our hopes and fears, our loves, our beliefs are all but the outcome of the accidental collocation of atoms. All of our labors, all of our devotion, all the genius are destined to extinction and the vast death of the solar system. Only within the scaffolding of these truths can... Only on the firm foundation, listen, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation be built. Okay? If Bertrand Russell is right, and you and I are simply cosmic, just a cosmic accident, 
then, then we, are, we are nothing more than animals. We're nothing more than beasts. Yes, yeah, sure, we have a greater reasoning capability, but we're nothing more than, than beasts. Because there's nothing sacred about us. There's nothing that, that says we have intrinsic value. We are but animals. But listen, we know that's not the case. Because look, if, if a lion, I've said this before, if a lion, were, you know, you're out in, whatever, watching National Geographic, a lion attacks an animal and kills this animal, you don't really think twice about it, right? It, you would never say that the lion murdered that animal, right? Lions don't murder animals. But if there is no higher transcendent authority in whose image we are made that makes us sacred and makes us value, then there is no inherent universal moral authority. We are just like that animal. Who is to say what's right and what's wrong? We could look at Hitler and we could say, well, man, we, we don't like what he did. It wasn't constructive to our society, but we can never look at what he did and say that was immoral. Some would say, and this is, this is a typical argument when I have this conversation with folks, some would say, well, society, culture tells us what's right or wrong. That's the answer I almost always get. Society tells us what's wrong. Culture tells us what's wrong. It's about doing what's right for the common good decided by the common majority. Um, the problem is, whose society? Whose culture? Which common majority? Um, our culture? 21st century American? Western culture? Middle Eastern culture, which oftentimes operates on a different sphere as much of the West. What about African tribal culture? Actually, I was having a conversation with a uh, non-Christian man uh, maybe three, four weeks ago. And I posed this question to him. And I said, which culture? And, and, and I enlisted those off. And he said, well, this is what he said. He said, well, those other cultures just haven't evolved as much as we have. That's what he said. And I was like, whoa. <laughs> I was like, whoa. I said, do you really believe that? Do you really, are you ready to make that kind of a statement? This is what it comes down to. If there is no God, if there is no reason for life, no logos, and anything behind it, then everything is meaningless. There is no love, there is no morality, there is no beauty. Who's to say what's right and wrong? Who's, why, why in the world should I, if everything's meaningless and everything's going to be destroyed eventually, why should I contribute to society? Why should I love my neighbor? Who's to say that love exists anyway? If we are just the outcome of a random collision of atoms, then love and beauty are nothing more than chemicals in my brain, synapses in my brain that are firing off. That's all there is. C.S. Lewis said it like this. He said, let's pretend... That nature is all that exists. Let us suppose that nothing has ever existed or ever will exist except this meaningless play of atoms in space and time. That by a series of a hundredth of chances, it has produced things like ourselves. And then C.S. Lewis asked the question, well, where does that leave us? This is what he says. He says, you cannot accept in the lowest animal sense, be in love with a girl if you know that all the beauties, both of her person and of her character, are a momentary and an accidental pattern produced by the collision of atoms. And that your own response to them is only a, a sort of psychic phosphorescence arising from the behavior of your genes. And he goes on to talk about beauty. He said, you can't go on getting any very serious pleasure from music if you know and remember that its air of significance is pure illusion. That you like it only because your nervous system is irrationally conditioned to like it. In other words, you understand what he's saying? I know this is a little much. Love, beauty, morality. If there is no God, if there's nothing transcendent that gives us that, it's all for naught. It's all chemicals firing off in our brain. That, that, that's what it comes down to. But here's the problem. Is life sacred? Is life sacred? 
Do men, women, and children have intrinsic value? The kids over in our children's ministry, do they have value, inherent value? Yes. Is the deep love that you feel for your kids or for your spouse or your parents, is it real or is it just a chemical in your brain firing off? And the only reason the chemicals are firing off is so that your species will survive. Is the love real? Is there such a thing as beauty? Is there such a thing as morality? Was the extermination of 6 million Jewish men, women, and children in the 1940s just inconvenient to the flourishing of our society? Or was it actually immoral? The, the only way that there can be a transcendent moral authority is if there is a transcendent moral law giver. It, is only, it can only be a moral law if there is a moral law giver. And so you may be here and saying, um, those of you who are still with me, um, okay, Philip, I'll give, I'll give you that much, okay? Th- there's a reason. Uh, I, I don't know what that reason is. I'll give you, there's a reason. I don't know what's behind it all. But is it so bad that I don't really ha- have all the answers? I don't really know what that, that reason, that logos is. Well, think about it this way. Apple just announced uh, the new iPad Air, right? Anybody seen the commercials for that? No. Okay. All right, thank you. Silicon Valley, guys, come on. Um, <laughs> Apple just announced a new iPad Air. It's unbelievable, okay? Cutting-edge technology. As powerful as that new iPad Air is, you know that's only weighs, it weighs one pound. It's insane. What if you were to walk in here next week, and you're walking through the doors, and you put your head down, and you walk through, right? Because you don't want to make eye contact with our greeters, right? So you put, your, you put your head down, and when you look down, you see those same iPads, and I'm just talking about the new iPad Airs, wedged between our doors being used as doorstops. What would you conclude? What, that's right. <laughs> what, what would you, you would say, why in the world is that iPad lying on the floor wedged between that door? Doesn't anybody realize the power and the potential for which that device was created? What a shame. What a shame, you'd say. You'd actually probably leave our church and never come back because how we are misusing and abusing and we're wasting our resources. Yet, friends, you know where I'm going. Each of you in here are infinitely more valuable, infinitely more valuable than the newest, greatest piece of technology. And yet for many of you here, your life is being wasted. Your life is being wasted because you have yet to allow yourself to be taken into the hands of the one who created you that you might see your potential. That you might see that for which you were created. There is a logos. There is a reason for the life that you live. We know it. I don't care where you stand on the spectrum. When you get down to it and you look, think about love and beauty and morality, you know it. There's got to be something behind it all. You know it. What is the logos? Have you submitted your life to it? Have you discovered what or who it is? Have you submitted yourself to it? Are you letting it shape you and guide you and direct you, determine where you go and what you do? Again, we haven't even said what the Logos is yet, but I bet you can guess, right? In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He was with God in the beginning. Who is the Logos? Say it loud. Jesus. All right, Jesus. Jesus is the reason for life. When the Greeks heard this, when the Greeks read John's first sentence of this gospel, this is what they read. Jesus is from which we come. He is the answer to our questions of origin and purpose and morality and destiny. And when the Hebrews read it, what they read John saying was, 
Jesus is God speaking to his people. Jesus is God's revelation of himself to the world. But again, Jesus went beyond, it went beyond Jesus' words. What God had to say to us was not only what Jesus said with his mouth, but who Jesus was and what he did. Jesus, Jesus did not just simply come to tell the truth. Okay? In John 14, Jesus says, I am the truth. Right? Jesus said, I am the truth. He is the word. Jesus isn't the word, the logos, in the sense that he's just a messenger from God or even a tool used by God. John's saying, the logos, the word, is God. And this is a category-shattering statement by John. Both the Greek and the Hebrew readers would have been floored by reading it. Um, John says, Jesus, the word, was in the beginning. So that's the way he starts off the whole book. In the beginning. In the beginning was the word. Uh, This phrase, in the beginning, is not just referring to the beginning of time and space and matter, right? The inception of all of those things. He's saying this is eternity past. John is saying Jesus never had a beginning. He has always been. We're told actually in the next few verses that it was actually through Jesus that anything that did come into being actually came into being. It was through Jesus that it happened. Um, This is is very important to understand, too. We get this. I talked to a guy like two or three days ago, sitting at Starbucks. We were talking about this and about who uh, Jesus is. And he, he didn't actually believe that Jesus was divine. He said, well, no, 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 no. He, he never you know, claimed to be God. He, he was a good teacher. gave lots of great, great uh, advice, great teaching. And if we would just be strong enough in our obedience, as, you know, according to the law, as he clarified it, then we might get eternal life. That's what this guy was, was telling me. John 1.1 1, 1 does not allow that. Okay, it does not leave room for that. He, John is essentially saying in the, the very first few words of his book, he's saying, before time and space and matter began, Jesus was. Jesus is not just some exceptionally moral man or a good teacher or a good example. Jesus is the beginningless God. Didn't have a beginning. He doesn't have an end. We find this in other places throughout Scripture as well. The doxology in Jude says this, To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. And then John says, Jesus, you know, he was in the beginning. He was eternity past, eternity future. And he says, he was with God, and he was God. And this is where minds start to just explode. Okay? He was with God and he was God. This is where you're going to get other religions, Islam, Jehovah's Witness, where they say, well, that's, that obviously cannot be. You can do one or the other. We'll give you that. We'll give you one or we'll give you the other, but that's it. Either he was God or he was with God, but it can't be both. because That doesn't make sense. And so what you'll do is you'll have some, like Jehovah's Witness actually will change the translation and they read it like this. The word was with God and the word was a God. So they add the little article a in there. And they read it where the word was a God. And actually, the, and the, the, the second God is, is lowercase g. Okay, the word is with God, and the word was a God. But that's not what the Bible said. That's not what the translation you, you, know, you can't just change the Bible to help it fit into the, the boxes that kind of make sense. The Bible paints a very clear, yet mysterious and profound picture of a triune God. One God, three persons. Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is what? One. The Lord is one. 
And yet all throughout scriptures, you're going to hear the Father referred to as God. You're going to hear Jesus referred to as the Lord God. And you're going to hear the Holy Spirit referred to as God. It's unbelievably clear. There's one God. And the Father is God and Jesus is God and the Holy Spirit is God. Um, 18 verses down uh, in John 1, you'll read this. John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Stop and think about that verse for a second. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Okay. Who is the only God who is sitting at the Father's side? Jesus, right? Okay, Jesus said the only God. Who is the only God who no one has ever seen? The Father. Okay, that's what you just said, at the Father's side. Only God. Only God, Jesus, Father. Okay? Now, I'm not saying, of course, that this is a concept that we can understand. All right? But the bottom line is this is what the Bible teaches. This is what the Bible says. Um, one God, multiple persons. Three persons to be exact. The Holy Spirit has yet to be introduced, but he'll, we'll get there. Uh, Paul says, though, don't despair. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully. That's what we hold on to. We understand that this is a mystery. We hold on to the mystery for now, understanding that it's still beyond our comprehension. But listen, we don't just kind of avoid these topics because we don't really get them. We don't stay detached from these uh, aspects of God's nature. In fact, what we do and what we're going to do for the rest of our time here is we're going to bask in that. We're going to bathe in that part of God's nature. There is a single word in this first sentence that has been gripping me the last couple of days as I've been studying John 1. It's the word with. The word was with God. In the beginning, the word Jesus was with God. This verse, what John is doing here is he's giving us an inside look, a behind the scenes, if you will, at what was happening prior to creation, prior to the inception of time and space and matter. Jesus was with God. God. And again, although the Holy Spirit hasn't been introduced in, in, in the gospel yet, he will be. The Father was with the Son. The Son was with the Spirit. The Spirit was with uh, the, the Father. These three persons of the Trinity are not simply just some abstract deities off doing their own little thing, right? Some abstract concepts. They're personal and they're together. They're personal. Actually, I love that in John 1 verse 2, I read it to you. He was with God in the beginning, okay? Uh, John says in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The word he. What, time of, what type of, my English teacher's here. What type of word is he? It's a pronoun, right? What kind of pronoun? Who knows? Personal. Say it loud. Personal. It's a personal pronoun. I love that. John uses in one, ver, chapter 1, verse 2, for Jesus, he uses, it, it, he was with God in the beginning, a personal pronoun in the beginning. They're not just abstract concepts, they are personal. Uh, the Trinity is one God and three persons, each with a distinct personality and a will and, and, and able to relate, and yet they are unified in their essence. Understanding this aspect of their nature is of the utmost importance to you and to me today. One of my favorite examples of the, the withness, the relationship of the Trinity, comes out of Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Uh, let me read it to you. 
In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So do you see what you have in this moment, in this event here? You've got Jesus in the water, physically, being baptized by John, coming up out of the water. The Father opens up the skies, speaks down on speaks words of love over him while the spirit then descends and covers him with power. All three persons of the Trinity in one moment interacting with one another, loving one another, glorifying one another, exalting one another. All three in the exact moment. My favorite book, probably right now, apart from the Bible, uh, is a book uh, called King's Cross by Timothy Keller. And Keller points out some really interesting things about this passage. This is what he writes. He says, this, this loving and glorifying one another is what has been happening in the interior life of the Trinity from all eternity. Mark is giving us a glimpse into the very heart of reality, the meaning of life, the essence of the universe. John 17, Jesus says to God the Father, he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Okay? For eternity past, the Trinity has been with one another, glorifying one another. C.S. Lewis says this. He says, in Christianity, God is not a static thing, but a dynamic, pulsating activity, a life, almost a kind of drama, almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. We've talked about this before several times here, haven't we? But it's so important. We're just going to keep talking about it and reveling in it. Almost, if you will not think me irreverent, a kind of dance. Cornelius Plantiga goes on with this. He says, The persons within God exalt each other, commune with each other, defer to one another. Each divine person harbors the others at the center of his being. In constant movement of overture and acceptance, each person envelops and encircles the other. And do you see now what what we're getting? Keller and and Lewis and Plantiga, what they're trying to say. A self-centered life, a static life, is where you ask everybody to revolve around you. Everybody needs to orbit around you. But the, the, the three persons of the Trinity for eternity past into eternity future are revolving around one another, loving each other, glorifying, exalting one another. Think of it like, like the shell game, right? At, at a baseball game, right? At the cup game, they put the little ball inside the cup and then you're supposed to keep an eye on where the, you know, which one has the ball. And it's just this constant movement. That's the movement of the Trinity. Not one person is static and self-centered, but each is constantly giving and receiving love and joy and adoration with one another. So why does this all matter? Why am I even talking about all this? Listen, C.S. Lewis says this. He says, it matters more than anything else in the world because this whole dance or drama or pattern of the three personal life is to be played out in each one of us. If the world is made by a triune God, a community of loving three persons, Relationships of love are what life is all about. Your view on God, your view on this, this logos has, has dramatically different implications. I hope you understand that today. I've already told you, if there is no God, then nothing matters. There's no such thing as love or beauty or morality. It's all chemistry in your head. Or if you believe that God is unipersonal. In other words, there's one God, one person. There's no trinity. If there's, there's one God, one person, think of what that means. There was a time when God was not love because love can only exist in a relationship. You with me? If God was unipersonal, then he must have created us so that he might have someone to give and, love, to give and receive love from. But then ultimately, don't you see, God would be dependent upon you and me. 
God couldn't be loved without you and me. He's dependent upon us. But what the Bible teaches is from eternity past to eternity future, God is a community of three persons knowing and loving one another and glorifying one another. That verse that I read to you a few minutes ago, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known, right? Read that? We read that, we read that verse and we think, okay, Jesus was sitting at the right hand of God. Like in the throne room, he's got the chair right next to God. What that verse literally Uh, How that verse could literally be translated is this. The only God who is in the Father's bosom. He has made him known. Jesus, in the Father's bosom, in his side, he has made him known. In other words, Jesus, the only God, is resting on the Father's chest. Um, Do you understand the the type of relationship that they're experiencing with them? What that, what that, that picture that's being painted there? How many people in your life have bosom privileges? There's got to be a better way I could have said that. Okay? But you understand, you, you know, sorry, Vicki. Uh, uh, you know where I'm going with that, though, right? If today, this afternoon, you go lay on your couch and you're watching TV or something, how many people in your life could come up with you and they could cuddle with you and they could put their head on your chest without it being terribly inappropriate? Okay? In my life, there's three. There's soon to be four. Okay? My wife and my kids. Do you understand that this is the type of relationship, this is the type of intimacy that the Father and the Son and the Spirit have enjoyed with one another for eternity past. And this is what we're being called into. The one who enjoyed a loving, intimate relationship with the Father has come in the flesh to make the Father known, to glorify him. Read, read John, John uh, 17. And then the Father glorifies the Son. Again, John, uh, Philippians 2. And then the Spirit comes and glorifies the Son. John 16. So the question we have to ask is, and why again would a triune God who already enjoys love and glory within himself, if he didn't create us because he needs the love from us, because right, he's just some needy, dependent God, if, if he didn't need that, if he already enjoyed perfect and complete love and glory within himself, within that community, why would he create us? Why would he create human beings like us? Keller writes this, he says, there's only one answer. He must have created us not to get joy, but to give it. He must have created us to invite us into the dance to say, if you glorify me, if you center your entire life on me, if you find me beautiful for who I am in myself, then you will step into the dance, which is what you are made for. You are made not just to believe in me or to be spiritual in some general way, not just to pray and get a bit of inspiration when things are tough. You are made to center everything in your life on me, to think of everything in terms of your relationship to me, to serve me unconditionally. That's where you find your joy. That's what the dance is all about. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and the Word became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And Jesus, the Word, lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. That we might be reconciled to him. That we might enter into the dance. And some of you here today, you are in the dance, and you're sweating, and you're having fun, and you're pouring yourself out, and you've you've embraced the Lagos. You've embraced the reason for your life, Jesus You're realizing your full potential because you're enjoying and you're growing in your relationship with God. You're in the dance. And there are some of you who were in the dance at one point, but for whatever reason, you've chosen to sit a few songs out. You're like, man, I'm I'm just going to, you just dance around me for a bit. My, My legs are tired. You're looking for everybody, and I mean everybody, including God, to orbit around you, to revolve around you. When yet, friends, you have been ransomed, 
by the blood of Christ. You've been ransomed, you have been called, and you have been empowered by the Holy Spirit to live your life for his glory and to love others in his name. And then there are those of you here today who have never joined in the dance. And you're, you're struggling to make sense of anything that I've just said. Let me, let me just simply say this. Let me say it in the words of somebody else who's much more eloquent than I am. Augustine wrote this prayer to the Lord. Very simple. He said, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. You've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. See, this message today is an invitation. The word, the logos, the beginningless son of God became flesh for you in the person of Jesus and he died for you. I told you, he loves you. And he demonstrates it on the cross that while we were still sinners, he died for us. He died for you. And his nail-pierced hand is outstretched towards you today, asking you, to, asking you to dance. Would you say yes? Accept the grace that he's offering you today. Submit your life to him, every single area. Let the spirit of Christ make his home in your heart and make you new. Let me close now by reading one last passage of Scripture and we'll be done. Actually, this is a paraphrase of Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 through 20. God rescued us from dead-end alleys and dark dungeons. He set us up in the kingdom of the Son he loved so much. The Son who got us out of the pit we were in. Got rid of the sins we were doomed to keep repeating. We look at the Son and we see the God who cannot be seen. We look at the Son and see God's original purpose in everything created. For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels, everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence and holds it all together right up to this moment. And when it comes to the church, he organizes and holds it together like a head does a body. He was supreme in the beginning. And leading the resurrection parade, he is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there, towering far above everything, everyone. So spacious is he, so roomy that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you are able to speak clearly again um, to each one of our hearts, Lord. And such a weighty, uh, deep uh, passage, Lord, and that, that, that takes us through different cultures and different understandings of different words and so on. God, it's, 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 I just pray, God, you'd speak to our hearts. It can so easily get convoluted and, and, and confusing. God, I just pray that somehow, some way, that every single person who is in this room is able to understand that there is a reason for life. There is something behind it all who put it all into existence and who is uh, taking the chaos and is making all things new. And I pray, God, if there's any person in this room that has yet to uh, submit their life to you, God, that you would draw them to your heart. Spirit, please move in each of the hearts, God. We, we entrust that responsibility to you and to you alone. God, move, please, in our hearts. Draw us to you. For those of us, God, who are walking with you and who are uh, doing our best to, 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 to love you and honor you and to serve you and to love others in your name, God, I pray that you would give us the energy to continue in the dance, that we would continue to love and glorify and exalt one another, serve one another in your name. I thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.